Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 23. To be sure, this mission has no meaning if we have no proof. I used my tough voice, which is remarkably similar to my wheedling voice, and, in fact, my voice voice. Of course, Famo, Goda whispered, looking around the restaurant in a deliberately casual and very much practiced way. He was a professional, and keeping me alive was the first order of business for him and Chicharron. They couldn't tell me what to do. They could only try and protect me while I did it. We had to be reasonably sure there was indeed a poorly disguised light coaster over in Dejato High Dock, parked all on its own, and if so, that it was the pirate in question. Then we would get word back to the squadron. It would star jump in as a group and issue a warning for that High Dock's personnel to evac. After that, it would blow the enemy ship to pieces, right there in the berth, likely wrecking the small station in the process. It would be a legal action because the high dock was supporting an enemy vessel, even if it didn't know it. There'd be protests and lawsuits and all the rest, but it wouldn't be a literal violation of the rules of engagement. And if Bloody Lud tried to shove off when the squad arrived, or better yet, attack, it would get fired upon immediately. Warnings be hanged. The op had to go smoothly, quickly, and without mistakes. Because if a battle suddenly appeared on the edge of the gravity well, it was a sure thing the resident warboats would want in on it. They had the juice and reach to make us regret our decisions, and the legal right and duty for system-wide defense. A fast strike while broadcasting our squadron identity and affiliations, as well as the identity of the target vessel, and the right we had to do what we were doing under imperial interfamilial conflict laws, was the only way to go. A quick in and out, blasting Ludvella to pieces. If we had to take it as a prize of war, things would get messy, and the locals would have time to express their displeasure. This was the mission. It had a lot of moving parts that were out of our hands, so I didn't especially like it. But that was nothing new. Piani Trisal was a witch. Oh, not in temperament, or at least she hadn't been in my presence. But she could cast a spell. Reflecting upon the thought made me see her toadies in a more sympathetic light. Their goals centered around personal gain, and every person involved on either side was guilty of that. Granted, some of the cadre were sketchy characters, as nobles went. Greedy, desperate sorts. Proud big shots who imagined futures of greater power and respect. None were ill-bred, 
but that only made the thing more sordid. It might become necessary to hunt some of them down, too, when this was over. Trap them like animals. That would be ugly and a big time sink. I stopped then and had to shake my head. It was so strange. I had no idea how we were going to win, but equally, no doubt that we would. I was swimming in a thick soup of ignorance and arrogance. I'd been doing so for some time, because I liked it. Quite frankly, it was addictive. The Giotto station is built like this one, correct? I asked, and Goda nodded. Corporate space products, he confirmed. They were purchased from an Imperial broker in Bylor system, if I recall the background report correctly. It was a package deal. Buying several at once got the investors a discount. They had star jump capabilities for the trip over, but the engines were uninstalled later and sold. Uh, there is a holiday here called uh, Nistacha Tiimpo, meaning, uh... He looked at a loss for a moment, then muttered to Chicharon, Guveste? The other man shrugged and said in English, Engine removal day? Sounds better in low speak, I confirmed, and they both nodded. Uninstalling a star jump engine from a station, even a small one, is often celebrated, Goda added. I know, it's the same back in the Alliance. To the mind of any locals or residents, it's a declaration that the new station is now a permanent part of their society, that it's something which will be around for the long haul. If your real estate can just hop away at any time, it doesn't feel much like a home. In my experience, though, that counts less to commercial and government outfits than it does to ordinary citizens. True, the man agreed, reading a pop-up text entry off his wrist comp, written in Seishan, and peppering his comments with the facts he read there. I would have expected the emperor, may Allah bless and keep him, to have been the registered owner of Dijato. He's not? I asked, surprised. The documentation we'd had available before the mission hadn't gone into so much detail. Goda had picked up this info from local networks since we arrived. No, it turns out the Sujivara-N family have investments in local shipping and transport within Juakad for many years. These investments are an outgrowth of their manufacturing and heavy metal and mining operations throughout the wider region. Very old money, and a lot of it. Close personal friends of the Imperial family, and so technically neutral in all this. The Jato station was originally used for their own freight and raw mineral hauling, but they have since had more Hydox delivered nearer to their operations in the other store systems. They've been renting the Jato out for about two years now. Despite their own mandate of discreet protection for the noblemen in their company, it was clear these men had joined my mission. Openly regarding them as valued members of the team had cast its own spell. This was assuring on the one hand, and deeply uncomfortable on the other. Okay, I assume there's something in that. Indeed, Famo, the man replied with a slight smirk. A lease for it was registered with the local Root Management Authority branch. The renting body is listed as 
Que é Fowler Investments, which should sound familiar. The financial firm that organizes cadre cash handling and distribution? They act as a go-between. And as a respectable front, legal and above suspicion, Chicharron put in with a wry smile, matching the other's grim satisfaction at seeing the pattern emerge. I joined him. We have found it. Goda gave him a reproachful glance and put his finger to his lips. The stocky man nodded in acknowledgment, still grinning. It's telling, but without hard evidence, this is still circumstantial, the former stated quietly. Is there a way for us to determine it for a fact? Most of the time, I stated, traffic information is public knowledge. Ja, Goda agreed, with pinched features, thinking though there is only information on happy choice. Not Lord Vela, Goda added. And we only have the testimony of a dock worker back in Merlin that the two might be the same ship, I concluded. I'm assuming we don't have the expertise among the three of us to try and crack a secure orbital control database. We could get exact details that way, such as the nature of Happy Choice's star jump entrance cone, which would prove that it's a warbird. They both just shook their heads. We could rejoin the squadron with what we have learned, Goda offered, then return with the personnel to make such an attempt. Do we even have enough for that? Chicharron asked. This is nothing but supposition. We have no vid... No connections between registered ship names and numbers, nor can we avow to having seen any such. We don't even know if any vessel is actually over there right now, let alone if it's the one we want. Well, for the moment, let's assume there is, and that it's Ludvella, I put in, because any talk about leaving just yet threatened to turn my sunny mood sour. The only defense it would have right now, berthed and powered down, is the Sujivara and neutrality claim. They might not think anyone would attack them directly in this star system, while we aren't so worried about that. Attack the wrong ship, Goda pointed out, and it will aid the enemy. And I am unsure, Fomo, how we are to obtain the required proof at this point. We could try to capture some imagery, perhaps, and run a profile comparison. If we can obtain and emplace long-range sensors or telescopics, Chicharon stated, waving that away, and if the ship is really there, and if it is even visible from this angle, and if, and if, and if... Your point is made, I interrupted. But again, if it's there, time is probably short for them. Ludvella can't sit idle forever, and it probably won't cruise by Soursop just so we can get a good look. We'll have to go over there. The ship may be defenseless right now, Chicharron re-emphasized, but the Jato High Dock itself is in their hands and off limits. It will not be easy or safe to visit. You say all that as if it's news, I scolded gently, smiling, because I already had a plan, and I knew these men weren't going to like it.
run! Goda whispered over comms. He could see me hovering in the shadows from across the companionway. Both of my bodyguards were squatting behind rounded barrels of common coolant used in power generation on most stations and ships. I was hanging back because I thought that one of the soldiers up the companionway was about to turn around and come toward us. She didn't, but I wasn't sure and became stuck near the edge of the storeroom by myself, feeling more exposed than ever. The next few seconds were endless. The edge of panic was right there. Fear of staying finally outweighed my fear of moving, and I responded to the urgent gesticulations with a sort of hunched shuffle that probably took more time and was noisier than if I'd just walked over there at my normal pace. Certainly, if any AI or human being was watching through security monitors, they'd have noticed me immediately, if for no other reason than how weird I was acting. Forget enemy agents, there's a madman on the deck. They wouldn't have been wrong. This had been my idea, and I'd insisted we try it, since the alternative would have been getting this close, but no further. Non-classified, non-military commercial cargo boat runs from civilian ports were all a matter of open record. The public flight schedule from Soursop showed that Dejato had a standard supply run coming up in a few hours. The cargo boat had a small crew, but it wouldn't be taking passengers aboard. No easy entry that way nor could we have made the attempt if this was to be a quiet operation. But a comfortable seat in the main cabin wasn't the only way to travel. It's nothing illegal, is it? The hefty man with a name tag that said Mubba had asked in a scared, hushed tone, speaking in a soft, low-speak dialect my rig had little difficulty translating. We were in the tiny office of Zezio Movers, Chicharron shook his head casually, smiling friendly-like and speaking fast. No, of course not. It's a load of aftermarket regulator plates for main drive engines. They were part of a shipment that got separated, and they went for a ride to Lokfuata last week, where they got relabeled for some reason. We yelled at the dockmaster over there, and they finally sent it back yesterday through some fly-by-night freight service. All that sounds like a pain, the guy offered sympathetically, clearly interested in coming to some sort of understanding, since Chicharron was holding out a credit stick at the time. You don't know the half of it. The crate still had the wrong label, so we couldn't find it. We went through seven pallets this shift looking. When it turned up, we had to confirm it actually had the plates, but the crate didn't open right. You need a special parting tool, I guess, so then it wouldn't reseal. We needed a new crate, but could only find an oversized cargo box lying around. What's that guy's name? He threw this at me over his shoulder, but never stopped yammering. Foos, futs, I don't remember. Mechanic or something over there on Dejato. He's been exploding for days now, complaining about the holdup. Help me make this thing go away. I'll have the box sent right over if you can get it on the next flight. We'll settle up the shipping fee right now, along with anything extra for, you know, expedited service. 
You just can't reason with some of these guys. I hear ya, Mubba replied with a shake of his head. A few moments later, he also heard the confirmation tone of a private financial transaction going through. We left Zezio Movers satisfied that our crate had bypassed the obligatory security checks by making it onto the manifest of a vetted, intrasystem shipping company. Mubba scheduled it for the outgoing supply run to Dejato in two hours. Such a helpful guy, though a tad expensive. So, a bribe to a supply clerk for small modifications to the manifest. Then a ride with all three of us in a dark, cramped freight box marked as Assort Reg Plates. Nothing the ship on Dejato had ordered. All supplies coming from the civilian sector that were going over there would have been scanned for obvious problems, such as radiologicals, biohazards, the chemicals associated with bombs, etc. Then they'd be inspected visually, unless the cargo was coming from a vetted hauler like Zezio. Most of the time, stations preferred using trusted outfits which had met or exceeded various security standards and could guarantee that their loads were exactly what they seemed to be and nothing more. I'd moved plenty of cargo like that, taking dockside gigs for a few weeks or months when positions in commercial shipping were hard to come by, to say nothing of gunnery. Desk workers in freight offices were notoriously underpaid, since much of the clerical and accounting work was, by law, handled by dedicated AIs that didn't make typos or other mundane errors that could send a cargo load on an unintentional trip across the galaxy. In the Empire, though, you couldn't just take a man's job away so easily, even if he wasn't needed anymore or getting paid what he was worth. Our shipment was pegged as requiring air pressure, artificial gravity, and heat, so the trip was filled with bumps, bruises, and a surprising amount of noise. The cargo hold was near the housing for the rear drive nozzles, and brother, what a roar when you are, in fact, in Atmo. Our crate was big enough for the three of us to sit inside, held securely by interior package webbing, but let's just say we got to know each other quite a bit better than anyone was comfortable with by the end of the trip, which took several hours. We'd left some venting slits in the side of the box, so we were getting air, but heat didn't apparently mean room temperature, and it got cold in there. We weren't frostbitten or anything, but it was probably good we were together after all, since huddling for warmth turned out to be a requirement. My two protectors were not happy about any of this. In the box, they rode the line between rudeness and outright insubordinate behavior to a nobleman, which was, of course, a crime over here. I took no notice, since it was a dead certainty that I'd have acted much worse in their shoes. I totally understood their feelings, but there wasn't anything for it. We couldn't see if the ship we were hunting was actually on Dejato, and we needed to. Ludvella had to be there. Not because all the evidence implied it, nor even because we'd been looking for so long. It had to be there, 
because otherwise I couldn't be done with this. I couldn't move forward. Hiding in a box was extreme, stupid, even by my ridiculous standards. We would use it to get aboard, slip out, then return to it after scouting around. This so we could be loaded back onto the cargo shuttle for the return trip to Soursop. Our carefully doctored label on the box would cause the HIDOC's automated freight handling system to mark us as a misshipment. Such mistakes happened more often than people realized. Caught early, misshipments were simply turned around and sent back to whence they came. It expedited things. It made the process more efficient. Under normal circumstances, there'd also be men and women on hand, wearing safety vests and hard hats, ostensibly to double-check the work of the machines, but really to fill out labor quotas. Dejato Station was being leased, and that meant sorting any quotas was the responsibility of the tenant. Predictably, there were no cargo handling services for the high dock currently on record. No people to just stand around and watch us sneaking about. But there would be soldiers. No. Pirates. Assassins. There had to be. The intent was to get in and out in the short turnaround time of the shuttle without leaving any trace, without anyone ever seeing us or learning about this excursion. We brought no firearms, no sabotage tools, nothing. If we were caught, we would claim to be crewmen from the shuttle who'd gotten lost. That was thin and absurd, but so what? We had personal comm devices to record whatever there was to be found and then to signal the Silver Flare courier that was to arrive by day's end. It would jump back to the squadron, and those ships of war would arrive here in Zhuacad system, only minutes later, real time. If it was there at all, Ludvella would be dead by the start of mid-shift. If it wasn't, I'd have wasted everyone's time. A grievous sin during any conflict, but an unforgivable one when there were active campaigns going on elsewhere that everyone involved could have been aiding. Often there were reasons for delays, such as flight checks and inspections, fueling and life support recharges, or even just the crew taking time to stretch their legs. Freight hatches didn't even get buttoned up until the very last moment to allow for late cargo changes. The return load would consist of tiny canisters of everything from recyclable materials to broken furniture and appliances, and of course, anything routed there by mistake. Bump, bump, bruise, bump, noise, clatter, clatter. On and on as the boat docked, the cargo bay opened, and various load bots removed all the boxes and crates. Goda had his risk comp's dim display plate set to a glow, just to give us some light inside. The two men were looking as nervous and sick of all this as I was. In most fully automated cargo settings outside the Empire, there were few, if any, human beings walking around unless there were problems that the bots couldn't handle. It should, should, 
go the same way in this case. Once the misshipment was noted by the bots and we were moved over to the staging area for reload, it would be safe to exit the box. Cargo bots are not security bots, and unless the crew of Ludvella had brought a bunch of those things along for no fathomable reason, and had decided such robots should watch over the cargo bots in the unloading zone for no fathomable reason, we would be alone. The load bots would recognize us only as high-priority temporary obstacles. They would wait while we passed by, offering nothing more than a beep to spur us on. If the goad was ignored, they'd beep some more. If this went on for a while, they'd eventually call for human help, but if we stayed out of their way, the machines would ignore us entirely. In theory. It's what my own experience had taught me to expect, and what I was grafting on to the current situation. It mattered. Everything I knew from a career of, more or less, honest labor, had to be of use. It had to be something we could mount and ride to victory, or else, what was I doing here? Yeah, what in perdition was I doing here? When our bouncing around ended, and all the mechanical sounds seemed some distance away, we listened a bit longer for human voices. Hearing none, Chicharron undid the simple latches we'd put up inside, cracked open the box lid, and we all peeked out. There were only crates, barrels, and wrapped bundles in view. Unless a container was marked as being stackable with a number next to it, that is to say that it was strong enough to support the weight of other containers like it up to the number listed, then load bots didn't put anything on them. Ours, of course, was not so marked, and all three of us carefully set the lid down to one side. Some civilian stations had security personnel or AIs monitoring movement all over the docks. Some only where people came and went, and still others only in areas that were dangerous or off-limits to the public. All stations had something, and it was only a guess as to what was in use on this one. Since they had this small station all to themselves, the commanding officer of Bloody Lud would have likely put crew personnel on some sort of security duty, if for no other reason than to keep the devil away from idle hands. Sitting and staring at a monitor all shift was akin to doing nothing at all, so we expected to see guards doing rounds. Additionally, setting a simple dead-eye to notice unusual things on cameras or sensors was possible. Such a program would note our location, then trip an alarm for the authorized humans to go investigate. We could watch out for random patrols, especially bored ones, but a monitoring AI would be our undoing. This made sense to me. Then again, so did a lot of other scenarios. It was quite possible, even likely, that we had inserted ourselves into a situation or setup that was entirely afield to what we were expecting or hoping for. Sitting around and agonizing over unknowns, though, was overwhelming and useless. I'd had to pick something to do, and this was it.
Chicharron eased out first, while Goda and I watched in different directions. There wasn't much to see. We were between some fluid containers on the one side and a few tall, film-wrapped pallets on the other. The short, wide man climbed up on the former, crouching and looking around. He waved us to follow and moved forward on hands and knees, from one mound to the next as carefully as he could manage under the circumstances. Goda went next, lingering a bit to wait for me. Then we were all on barrel tops, crates, and bundles, scrambling toward a big metal strut running from deck to overhead. This high dock was cylindrical, spinning for the simulation of up and down, but with artificial gravity in several places as well, to maintain a smooth experience and to compensate for the Coriolis force. It was at a fairly standard 1.1G. I made a lot of noise, clamoring over metal and plastic, and I almost fell off one time when my hands slipped between two barrels. I didn't shout, but I did grunt loudly. My knees hurt badly by the time we could hide behind the strut and climb down to the deck, and I had a hard time standing up for a minute. I can't do that again, I whispered, rubbing my knees. You could if you hit the gym, Goda fired back quietly, all deference to my social rank lost in the tension of the moment. Yeah, find one here. We can be workout buddies, I countered while looking about for a control plate or readout. This was a very big, dark room with a bright open maw. There were nothing but crates and containers, all earmarked for loading aboard the boat we'd just exited. Occasionally, the brightness was occluded by a rolling load bot going by. There were no people in view and no obvious sensors on the walls, though that didn't mean much. I don't see a status panel anywhere, Chicharron put in. Even a freight counter will do, I said, starting off along a narrow pathway formed by rows of packaged materials and goods. There may not be one in here. There isn't always. We'll have to look out in the companionway. At one point, an automated overhead crane, winding along the ceiling on a track network, rolled up behind us looking to set down a bundled package of pipes or small girders collected for recycling. It noticed us moving through the stacks and held off until we were clear, then set down the bundle gently on top of the barrels we'd just scrambled over with nary a clank. No going back that way, Goda remarked, watching the bot move along the ceiling toward the front to pick up something else. This sort of restless, ant-like activity continued normally throughout the process of loading and unloading items. It was a type of swarm technology, with the robots deciding, on the fly, to move and stack and unstack freight as items came in and out of the loading zone, always making the most of the available space. When the actual labor of a job was not a concern, nor the energy required to power it, other issues became central. Cargo robots, in a place like this, were often allowed the autonomy and isolation to work as they saw fit. At the opening, Goda glanced both ways, 
then moved across in a rapid yet somehow casual manner as if he were just some worker busy at his job. On the other side from the bay door were several large containers set inside a staging area marked off by yellow lines on the deck. Chicharron followed in the same fashion. The two men looked back to me and motioned. I peeked out around the corner to my left. What looked like an open road extended off, curving up in the distance, following the inside shape of the station hull. A long way off, perhaps fifty meters or more, with feet pointed down as they walked along the deck, two people in uniforms became visible just then, heading toward our position. At least, it seemed that way for a few thrilling seconds. Goda called to me over comms, but I couldn't move. After a terrible few seconds, they turned to their left through another opening along the way and were out of sight. They had not looked armed, but I'd only gotten a glimpse. They hadn't seen us and hadn't been in a hurry. I took a moment to steady my breathing. This was crazy. Madness! We would be shot if we were caught. And my knees still hurt. And what was I doing in noble space sneaking around a military space station for a cause that even I had a hard time articulating? Chicharron, across the way, spoke quietly. Steady, Famo. You're doing fine. Fine. I was doing... Fine. I... Oh. Oh, that had been close. I'd been able to avoid panic attacks since that night on Juriano Colony and my dance with Piani. I never had one or even felt them to be close when the action was happening aboard some ship or other. That sort of thing was familiar, safe, even when it wasn't. But out here, now, tiptoeing around like a country mouse near a sleeping cat? I took another breath, held it, and then exhaled slowly and silently. Yes, I am fine, I whispered to myself. Run, Goda hissed. The open battlefield quality of the situation induced a crab walk across the Metal Avenue, like I was a ten-year-old playing garden party games. So smooth, the fearsome astaron in action. This road was wide and mostly clear, but there were also tracks for cargo rollers or trams embedded in the deck. Roller bots and automated bulk trams used these to move loads to and from the storerooms, running between this cargo sector to the docks and back for as long as there was cargo to move. There would be wide freight elevators situated along the arc of the floor, but none were immediately in sight. Normally, a passageway like this would be extraordinarily busy, with robots and human cargo specialists crossing hither and thither. 
Right now, with the entire high dock leased for the use of a single vessel and its crew, things were eerily quiet. The crane bot for this storeroom, now behind us, represented the only movement as it proceeded to fill up the narrow spaces between pallets and crates through which we'd just scuttled. Access to our crate was now cut off, our retreat cut off. That was a problem, but there were several in the way, and we had to work them one at a time. Finding Latvella was next. No status or control panels were yet in view. With one of those, and a few moments of digging, we could get documentation through the freight database regarding what vessels were currently here. Evidence. Establish that Happy Choice was here, then that Happy Choice was Latvella. We stepped along the road slowly, and as easily as I could manage, still a bit hunched and more than a little skittish. How much walking around can we risk? I asked, once again looking back and forth along the curve of the deck in both directions. The overhead directly above us had track inlaid, just like the floor. That was for the sake of the rolling cranes, which could be sent out from the storerooms on long trips to fetch and carry. As much as we need, Goda replied, leading us in the opposite direction from where we'd seen the two people before. Remember to act like lost civilian crewmen from the shuttle, in case we're being monitored. Look around a lot and point. I know what you said before about letting you talk, Famo, but... No, you're right. You speak for us. Or for me, anyway. My low speak was better than ever, but that didn't make it good, and my accent was atrocious, or so I'd been laughingly told on numerous occasions by numerous people. We moved on. My imitation of a confused tourist was not without authenticity. I really had no exact idea where we were going or what a useful display panel in this place might actually look like. We'd spent time on this station's sister high dock, but not down in the automated cargo lanes. Such displays could range from simple touchscreens on the wall, with access to schedules, manifests, and directions to local eateries, all the way up to full-blown offices, complete with people, tri-D emitters, and paperwork. We were hoping for the former, but anything was possible. There were more storerooms along the way, all with large roll doors closed. Everything was painted in a strange combination of light gray with yellow accents. It was bright, but industrial and depressing. Nothing like a control board or access display plate was in view until we saw a tall, dark panel ahead that had a screen, an interface, and a chair. It was empty. Then, just like that, a unit of four armed guards cruised down from the curve ahead of us in a moderately sized roller car. They gestured as if they'd found what they were looking for and called out in low speak for us to stop. Without anywhere to run, and definitely nowhere to hide, we three spies 
did exactly that. You have been listening to All He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Malov and is licensed through tribeofnoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio novels and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care.